I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Do you ever feel your world is turned upside down, where everything is going wrong? You're wondering, why is this happening? Where is God in the midst of all this? You know, Maybe it's uh, the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's a loss of a friendship, a dating relationship, or just this, this deep, agonizing feeling that my life is, is going nowhere. What's the purpose of all this? If you've ever had these moments where you feel like you're, you're in this darkness in your life and maybe even in your spiritual life, where do you go? I want you to turn to Mary. That's what we're going to talk about, turning to Mary in those moments. Now, some of you, I'm sure, are wondering, turn to Mary? Why would I turn to her? I mean, she had everything all together, right? I mean, she was the immaculate conception, full of grace, and she never sinned. She had angels appearing to her. She had uh, the perfect husband, the perfect family. Uh, She's the virgin of all virgins. She's totally pure of heart. I, I can't relate to her. I mean, yeah, I know we're supposed to love Mary, and we sing praises to her. We, we sing the Hail Holy Queen, Immaculate Mary, and all these Hail Mary prayers, but I, I can't relate to her life. Uh, why would I turn to her in those moments? That's what I want to talk about today, because I think the church is challenging you today, in this week, this very week, to turn to Mary in your moments of challenge and trial and suffering. Why? Because this is a week where the liturgical year focuses a lot on Mary. Well, while she was this extraordinary woman given unique graces, utter privileges, she is the great Immaculata. That's true. We cannot forget, my friends, she's human. She was human. She comes from the human family. She had moments of darkness and challenge and trials and discernment and pain and suffering like we do. And this week draws attention to her humanness. In fact, uh, the week began September 8th. Uh, We celebrated the birthday of Mary, the nativity of Our Lady. She had a human mother, a human father, came from a human family. uh, And and so she had all the drama of human life uh, that, that she experienced growing up. But I want to draw special attention to what happens at the end of this week. On September 15th, this Saturday, we have Our Lady of Sorrows. Our Lady of Sorrows. Let's take a look at this title of Mary, Our Lady of Sorrows, today. But first, I want to just tell you all, if you can say a prayer, please, for me. I have a little prayer request. I have a new book coming out on Mary. Uh, It's something I've been working on for, well, in many ways, for over a decade, uh, but pretty intensely doing all the final edits over the last couple of months. I know on social media I've asked for prayers for this project. A number of you prayed for me, so thank you. But it's at the printer now. It's a book that covers every New Testament reference to Mary, every biblical data point about Our Lady, and, and tries to understand and milk all those scriptural references for all they're worth. What can they tell us about who Mary is and what is her role in God's plan of salvation and what, uh, how does she model being a disciple for all of us? So every New Testament reference to Mary, it has a chapter just on the word hail, for example, from the angel Gabriel, and then a chapter just on full of grace. Uh, and so it's like, you know, just imagine a book of trying to, uh, Go in depth into every New Testament reference to Mary. It's called Rethinking Mary in the New Testament. Rethinking Mary in the New Testament because many times people think there's not that much about Mary in the New Testament. I want people to rethink of that and see that while she's not mentioned many times in the scriptures, the times when she is present in the Bible, there's a lot there. They come at climactic moments, crucial turning points in the story, uh, and, and God is telling us something very important about her and her role in the Christian life. So, Rethinking Mary in the New 
New Testament. If you could say a prayer for that, is it? It's at the printer that can help people to know and love Mary better. I would greatly appreciate it. So back to our topic for today. We are going to be exploring this title, Mary, Our Lady of Sorrows. And I think about how throughout Mary's life, God is inviting her to step into the darkness more. Now, we think about Mary, we think of light. You know, she's pure, she's radiant, she reflects the glory of God, she magnifies the Lord in her soul. And that's all true, but there's an element also in which God is gradually inviting her to step into the darkness, to step into the unknown, uh, to step into the suffering of her son more. Uh, and, And as the deeper she goes in union with her son's cross, the more she reflects and magnifies the Lord uh, in his glory and his love and his plan of salvation. So I want to just take a look at three key moments in Mary's life. I I think we could look at many of them, but I want to just touch on three moments where we see the, the Lord inviting Mary to step into that darkness, to draw closer and share in her son's suffering. Uh, These are moments when God is is unveiling to Mary what is the ultimate plan for her son, Jesus. That yes, Jesus is the great King of kings and Lord of lords, but ultimately he's going to establish his kingdom through suffering and sacrifice on the cross. And Mary is being gradually brought into that mystery. So let's turn to one scene that comes uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. It's the scene known as the presentation of the Lord. This is when, according to Jewish tradition, you would bring up uh, the firstborn son to the temple, and then the mother that was uh, that had just given birth to a child would go up for ritual purification. That's in the background here. You know the story. Mary and Joseph go up to the temple on that day. They're bringing the child Jesus. He's a 40-day-old baby. And then this strange, mysterious, prophetic figure comes, this man named Simeon. I want you to picture this. This is a complete stranger. They've never met Simeon before, and they're just picture them walking up the temple steps, and all of a sudden, this, this unknown man to them just comes and grabs the baby out of their arms. That's what the Bible tells us and, 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 and pr- starts praising God about how wonderful this child is. He's going to be a light of revelation of the Gentiles. He's going to be glory for the people of Israel. And you can imagine Mary and Joseph being encouraged there, hearing this, this, this stranger, this prophetic figure announcing this child is the one who's going to be light to Israel and glory, light to the nations and glory to Israel. But then... As you know, Simeon will turn to Mary, and she's gonna, he's going to give these ominous words to Mary, and it's a prophecy about what is going to happen to this child. Yes, this child is the one who will be light to the Gentiles and glory for Israel, but he's also going to experience incredible suffering, and it's going to involve Mary participating in that suffering. Listen to what Simeon says. He says, This child is destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel. This He shall be a sign that is contradicted, and a sword will pierce your soul also. Let's unpack these, these words here, these mysterious, ominous words. John Paul II called these words the second annunciation to Mary. The second annunciation to Mary. In the first annunciation, the angel Gabriel comes and announces the joyful news that this child will be the, the son of David, the prophesied one, the great king, the Messiah, and, and his kingdom will last forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So the first annunciation is all about Jesus is the promised Messiah, the great king, and indeed, he's going to be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit because he comes from God. He is the holy son of God himself. But then, here 
nine months later and 40 days later. So nine months and 40 days later, here at the presentation scene, Mary gets these stark words from Simeon the prophet, who talks about how this child, while he is the great king, he is the holy son of God, he's going to suffer greatly and it's going to cause Mary incredible pain herself. So this child will be destined for the rise and fall of many in Israel. It shows the turmoil that's going to be surrounding Jesus's public ministry. There will be many who will rise in Israel, many of the poor, the suffering, the outcast, people who were sinners, the Gentiles. They're going to be elevated in Christ's kingdom. And yet those who were supposed to be the religious leaders drawing people to the Messiah are going to lead them away. They're going to discredit Jesus. They're going to mock him. They're going to turn people away from him. People like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, and uh, they're going to oppose Jesus and they're going to be cast out of the kingdom. So there's going to be tremendous turmoil surrounding Jesus's public ministry, the rise and fall of many in Israel. He will be a sign that is contradicted. The word there for contradicted or spoken against in Greek, antilego, is a word used all the time by Luke. In Luke's gospel and in his second volume work called Acts the Apostles, this particular word for spoken against doesn't just mean like some kid on the playground picking on some other kid or making fun of him. No, the word for spoken against is used by Luke all the time to describe Jewish leaders plotting against Jesus, either plotting against Jesus himself or plotting plotting against his disciples uh, and seeking to bring them to their end. So this isn't just a soft word of, oh, he's he's pick, they're going to pick on you, Jesus. Oh, they're going to say some mean things about you. They're going to gossip about you. No, this is about the Jewish leaders conspiring to plot against Jesus to bring him to his destruction. Uh, now, Simeon uses the most graphic image here, the word sword. And the sword is going to pierce Mary's soul also. Now, of course, the image of a sword brings to mind war, bloodshed, death. It's a foreshadowing of what will happen on Good Friday when Jesus's body is, is, is taken down from the cross. Uh, what do they do right then? Before they, they, they take that sword and pierce Jesus's side and the blood and water come out in John 19. But that sword is also this uh, here depicting Mary's suffering. The, the suffering that she will endure as she watches Jesus die on the cross. It's as if her son Jesus is enduring this physical crucifixion, nailed to the cross and, and, and dying this ter- horrendous, a torturous death. But Mary is going to experience a spiritual crucifixion uh, as she's there at Calvary. So, this is the first time, just picture being this brand new mom. You've got a 40-day-old baby. Think about how moms are usually very joyful, so excited to have a new baby. But then the prophet figure comes and announces the coming darkness, the coming of the sword, the coming of the cross. And Mary still hangs in there. She doesn't back out. She doesn't say, whoa, I didn't sign up for that. I just said I would be the mother of the Messiah. I told Gabriel my fiat back then, but you didn't give me full disclosure, God. You didn't tell me that it was going to end this way with the sword, with the cross. No, no, no. Mary doesn't do that. She still says yes. She continues moving forward even though now she has full explicit knowledge of where this is all going. She does not run away from the sword. She does not back down from the cross. 
Let's fast forward now. I want to take you 12 years later. Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, and you know the story. He's lost and found in the temple. Remember that? Uh, what's fascinating here is in this scene of the finding of Jesus in the temple. Jesus is they're there for Passover, and Mary is separated from Jesus for those three days. She doesn't know where he is and then discovers him in the temple. John Paul II makes a very interesting observation about this scene. He says, Mary's shared in the suffering of her son already. That's happened before, where when, when he was born in poverty and humility and rejection, there was no room for him in the inn. Uh, Herod's trying to kill him. Simeon gives the prophecy about the sword that's coming, how the Jewish leaders will oppose Jesus and kill him. So she's she's already uh, feeling the pain and suffering of, of knowing uh, how her son is being rejected, is being ignored, will be uh, crucified eventually, the sword will come. But John Paul II notes this scene of the child lost and found in the temple. This is the first time Jesus does something that causes Mary suffering. It's the first time Jesus does something that causes her great pain. Uh, let, let's think about this scene. Let's put it into context here. Uh, Jesus is a 12-year-old boy. They go up to Jerusalem for Passover. So they're on a pilgrimage going from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And while he's there, he goes to the temple and he amazes the elders with his wisdom. Uh, but in the process, he ends up being separated from his mother for three days as they didn't know where he was when they were heading back to Nazareth and they're searching anxiously for him. Uh, and when she finally finds Jesus, what does, what does Jesus say? He says to his parents, "'Did you not know I must be in my father's house?' And then what's Mary's response? Mary says, oh, thank you for that clarification. That makes sense. No, <laughs> the Bible tells us Mary did not understand. And she kept and pondered what, what, what this saying meant. So she's mulling over in her mind. What does that mean? What just happened here? And, and I'm sure as she was prayerfully keeping this in her heart, she would eventually start making the connections. You see, this scene, this is the only scene we have from Jesus' childhood, from a 12-year-old boy in the temple all the way to uh, his beginning of his public ministry. This is the only scene we have from Jesus' childhood. And it tells us that Jesus goes on a pilgrimage from Galilee to Jerusalem, foreshadowing another pilgrimage Jesus will make when he's an adult. This scene as a 12-year-old boy is a foreshadowing of what will happen when Jesus makes his last pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He's going to go from Galilee to Jerusalem and on the, on, on the last days of his life for what feast? For Passover, just like he did when he was a 12-year-old boy. And just as he went to the temple as a 12-year-old boy, so Jesus, when he goes into Jerusalem, where's his first stop? He goes to the temple. And just as the young 12-year-old boy amazed the elders with his wisdom, so Jesus amazes the crowds and the people in Jerusalem with his great teaching. And But in the process of being there in Jerusalem, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to be separated from his mother once again for three days as he dies on the cross, just like he was separated from Mary as a 12-year-old as a boy. And why is Jesus separated from his mom? Why does Jesus go to the cross? Because he has to be in his father's house. Uh, it could be translated, he, he must be about his father's affairs or about his father's business. He's doing the will of the father, even though this will cause Mary pain and suffering. You see, when Mary was, a, was younger and lost her 12-year-old boy in the temple, that caused her tremendous pain. 
Uh, and it's the first time in the Bible that Jesus himself does something that causes her pain. She suffered, I'm sure, when Caesar's census was announced and in her last trimester she had to pick up and move to Bethlehem. She suffered when there was no room for this child in the end. She couldn't give the baby Jesus the basics of what any mom would want to give her child. And she suffered when Herod had his plot to massacre all the holy innocents and was trying to get Jesus and they had to flee to Egypt. She suffered when she heard of Simeon's prophecy about how the Jewish leaders would conspire against her son. All those things caused suffering, but those were other people causing her pain. Now Jesus does something that causes her pain. There is he separated from his mother for those three days as a 12-year-old boy in the temple. And he's doing this because he's doing the will of the Father. He must be in his Father's house. He must be doing his Father's will, following his Father's business, his Father's affairs. And while he's always going to love and honor his earthly parents, his primary allegiance is to the Father's will even if that means suffering for Mary. Do you see how this scene foreshadows what will happen later in Mary's life when Mary is going to experience those same events as Jesus goes to Jerusalem in those final days around Passover and ends up watching her son die on the cross, losing him for those three days? That caused her tremendous pain. Let's turn now to that scene. That's the last one we'll look at. In John 19, Mary is standing by the cross of Jesus on Good Friday. We'll end here. Uh, John Paul II makes this beautiful, profound observation here. Listen to this. He says that, you know, think, put yourself in Mary's shoes. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing his, his reflection here. But put yourself in Mary's shoes. You know, many years ago, 33 years ago, roughly, uh, an angel came to you and announced that uh, you're, you're going to have a child. And this child was destined to be the great king he was going to be the Messiah, the prophesied one. He's going to be the one who's going to establish the kingdom, reunite Israel. He's the one that's going to have a kingdom that will have no end. And then you're standing there on Good Friday and all the hopes that you had for your son. You saw the crowds respond, how thousands of people would come to hear him preach. Thousands of people wanted him to come bring healing. You watched the crowds welcome Jesus as the great king into Jerusalem just earlier that week. And now you see him scourged with a crown of thorns on his head uh, in utter humiliation, utter agony, utter pain on the cross, dying at the hands of the Romans, the most shameful death, most humiliating death to be crucified by the Romans. How is this a fulfillment of what Gabriel foretold some 33 years ago? How could this be? Uh, John Paul II says this, from a human perspective, Mary is witnessing on Good Friday as she's standing at the cross, Mary is witnessing, quote, the complete negation of those words, the complete negation of Gabriel's words. Gabriel said this was going to be the great king, and here I see him crucified, defeated by the Romans. How could this be? What happened? Mary's world is turned upside down completely this day. She is invited to step into the utter darkness now. That darkness that fell on Good Friday on Calvary is now falling over her heart. And no human crutch can support her at this moment. There are times in life when we experience such heartache, such bewilderment, that we, we try to turn to those old things that are going to make us happy. If I just dress up today, you know, wear my favorite clothes, that'll make me feel better. I'll listen to my favorite music and that'll lift my spirits. Or I'll, I'll go, you know, to my favorite park or I'll go to my favorite bar, you know, whatever it is. I'll, I'll just try to, I'll try to do something that I think is going to 
gonna fix it, and deep down, we know it only offers a very temporary, shallow fix, that our problem is much deeper. And as we stand in the darkness in life, we want to remember Mary. What did she do at this moment? John Paul II said, the only thing Mary could cling to was God's words, the words of Gabriel, the words of Simeon, the words of Jesus, her son, preaching that this truly is the beloved son. This truly is the Messiah. I know what God spoke, even though I don't feel it right now. Uh, there are moments where the great saints experience this darkness, like Mother Teresa did. And I, I think of St. Therese of Lisieux, the, the great little flower, uh, as she was going through her great suffering and tuberculosis and the months leading up to her death, she experienced such tremendous darkness on the inside that she said the only thing she could do is just make acts of faith, say a little prayer. It's called the act of faith. And she would just repeat it over and over again. Or she would sing the songs at Mass and she would recite the creed, but she said, I sing what I want to believe. In other words, deep down, she didn't have any feeling of faith and closeness to God at all. And she's going, where is the Lord in the midst of this? It's just some heavy fog hanging all over me. But she's clinging to faith, clinging to the words of revelation, the words of God, clinging to the creed. And she would, she would just remember those words, and that's what helped her and supported her through the darkness. It reminds me of the Psalms. Many of the Psalms talk about the man going through great suffering, the righteous man, feeling as if God abandoned him. But he goes back and he remembers, no, Lord, I remember how the, you rescued the people of Israel when they were in suffering. You, in times of, uh, of great turmoil, they turned to you and you were always there. You always helped them through. You will help me as well. We have to remember that from the Old Testament saints to the New Testament saints, to Mary, to Mother Teresa, to St. Therese, that when we face our moments of darkness, God is there as well. Let me leave you with this. I want you to think about this here. This is the Mary who, from a human perspective, witnessed the end of everything she had lived for. This is Mary at the cross. Yet she did not run away from this darkness, nor did she fall into despair. She remained standing with faith at the cross of Jesus. These are some lines I wrote in a book that came out a number of years ago. It's called Walking with Mary, A Biblical Journey from Nazareth to the Cross. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just quoting here. And I quote Mother Teresa, who once said this, At the foot of the cross, our lady saw only pain and suffering. And when they closed the tomb, she could not even see the body of Jesus. But it was then that our lady's faith, her loving trust, and total surrender were greatest. You see, God brought Mary to this point of the, the complete darkness on Good Friday. And, and all she could do is have just total surrender and total trust. That's all she could do uh, is to trust in the words of God. And in those moments, sometimes it's the only thing we can cling to. Uh, and and I, I write this at the end. You know, in the end, all those other coping mechanisms won't work, you know, when we try to turn to you know, superficial things. I'll just watch a lot of Netflix and that somehow will make me feel better. I'll, 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 I'll just spend a lot of time on social media. That'll really lift my spirits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So none of those other coping mechanisms will work. Mary on Good Friday shows us the only way forward, loving trust and total surrender. By her example, she invites us to stand with her in that darkness and entrust ourselves to the only one who can carry us through. The Mary of Good Friday invites us to join her at the cross, to cling to God alone, as she did, and to discover in a more profound way the strength that truly supports us 
not only in the most difficult times, but at every moment of our lives. In those moments when our world is turned upside down, God is often there wanting to do some deeper work in our souls to allow us to experience his grace holding us together, to support us in a way like we may have never experienced before. And we come away with a greater confidence in life when we can lean into Jesus and, and, and experience him supporting us, carrying us through. That's what Mary was challenged to do on Good Friday. And that's what she models for us, to lean into that trust, total surrender, total trust in the darkness, not to run away from it, not to look for superficial quick fixes, not to just try to go back to the way things were before, but to meet Jesus there, to meet the Father there, to meet the Holy Spirit there, supporting us and guiding us through. These are some lessons we can take away from Our Lady of Sorrows. Mary, the great saint who experienced darkness and trials like we do, can be the model for us and know she's always interceding for us as well. She's been there before. She's praying for you. Turn to her. She loves you and wants to help you. Thanks so much, my friends, for listening. If this can be an encouragement to others, you may have family and friends who are going through difficult times. Please share this podcast with them. And you can always find me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or on my website, edwardstreet.com. One last thing, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i talk more about this next week, but my new Rome pilgrimage is announced. I'm going to be going May 20th through 28th. Uh, we are headed to Rome in Assisi. If you want to join me on a Rome pilgrimage, check out my website, edwardsreed.com, for more information or email me and we can get you a brochure. Thanks for listening, my friends. God bless you. Thank you.